0: As the sun set, he prepared for the journey. I don't know how long it took or how far it was, but he had made up his mind to go. He waited for the right moment, for that moment when it, it feels right. He took a deep breath and asked for the courage, and then he went. Perhaps he walked, perhaps he ran, but in the end, he found him, Jesus. The Bible tells us in the book of Mark that as Jesus started on his way, getting ready to leave the place where he had been teaching, a young man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. The story is a familiar one. It is found in the book of Mark, chapter 10. You can follow along with me if you like. It is something that you've probably read or studied. Um, It's maybe something that you've heard here because we've talked about this. I've preached on this text in the past. And so it will be a familiar story. You know what will take place. You know the outcome. But for a moment, allow me to lead you further into the story. The Bible says... That as Jesus started on his way, verse 17, chapter 10, the book of Mark, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. At the start of the story here, it is entitled uh, "The Rich Young Man." It's found the story in three other, go- in two other gospels for a total of three times. Uh, some places entitled "The Rich Young Ruler," and so we know quite a bit about this particular exchange because the Bible retells the story in the different voices of the authors scholars have had time and opportunity to do research to try to paint a clearer picture to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and it's an amazing story and a familiar one and yet today i ask you to linger in it a little bit longer with me the Bible says that the young man came to Jesus, ran up to him. The book of Mark says he didn't just sneak up. He ran up to him. It's as if he knew there was a short opportunity. Jesus was about to leave, and this was his moment. And he ran to him and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Clearly, because it's a familiar story and because we read this translated into English it sort of has lost its urgency. Like with any story, the once you hear it a few times, you know what's going to happen. And it doesn't particularly pique your interest. But I want you to just imagine it for just a moment. What we know about this young man is that he lived a life of privilege. You know the story. This isn't news. But just to uh, widen the picture, we know that he lived a life of privilege. He was probably born into some kind of wealth. He had probably been raised to expect good things of his life. He was probably designated to be a leader in his community. Researchers and scholars tell us that he was part of what we call the ruling class of the time. You know, I don't have to tell you, but just so we're all on the same page. In those days, the Jewish people of whom we read the story were a group of people who were under Roman occupation. That means the Roman Empire ruled, but amongst their community, they had their own sort of subset of rulers. And there was one group of people whom we call the Pharisees, and their counterparts, the Sadducees, who were essentially the ruling class. In Jesus' day in the Jewish culture, politics and religion were not separate. They were one and together. And this ruling class would determine matters of law, because they handed out judgments, punishments, settled disputes, but they would also determine matters of spirituality. It was their task to explain to people what the right thing to do was, what the wrong thing to do was in God's eyes. And so they were at the top of Jewish society. Researchers tell us that this young man was born into that society, was born into that culture, and was probably destined to be a top leader amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The problem was that when Jesus arrived on the scene, beginning with the gospels, and when Jesus began to take up his public ministry after his baptism, everything that came out of Jesus' mouth and everything that came out of Jesus' hands seemed to be a direct challenge to this established system amongst the Pharisees. It's as if every time Jesus opened his mouth, every time he took a step and did anything publicly, it was as if he was taking straight direct aim at what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had set up in place. You already know this. And so there was a great conflict between the words of Jesus and the words of the Pharisees. All throughout the Gospels, we find that there was animosity that the that the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't stand Jesus because everything he said was like undermining their authority. Everything that he said challenged their their completely convinced beliefs. It was every time like he opened his mouth, they felt insulted and offended, and they wanted to silence him. You know this. So the Bible tells us over and over again through the Gospels how they planned to. Silence him. They plotted against him in the biblical language. And you know the story. They succeeded. They killed him for it. So there was this great conflict between what Jesus was saying and the new way he was proposing and what was in place. It's almost like a battle between good and some sort of evil. But what's interesting about this story is that this young man belonged to this side, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He had been born into it, raised into it. His path was laid out. And it seemed like a path full of promise. And yet here came Jesus, messing it all up. Taking aim at this man's life. At least that's how I imagined it. Researchers don't tell us. We we don't really know. But what we know from this story at this point that the young man approached Jesus and he approached him not like he was usually approached by the rest of his comrades. Every time they came, they asked questions and did things, and the Bible explicitly tells us to try to trap him. But this young man seems to approach Jesus in a slightly different way. It's almost as if, picture this, it's almost as if he was part of this group, but he was a sympathizer of this group, and he was caught in between a little. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever felt like, I've been doing it this way, I've been living my life this way, I've been going along with these ideas, but I don't know. Clearly, he had some sympathy. He had some uh, some love in his heart for Jesus and what he was saying. And so the Bible tells us that he approached him, ran up. The other gospel tells us that it was late in the evening or perhaps at night. See, he couldn't go to Jesus publicly because everyone that he knew, loved, and had grown up with, been surrounded by, would judge him and criticize him, chastise him opening up his life to, to ridicule and, and, and being cast out, ostracized. So he couldn't do that. But somehow, whatever Jesus was saying compelled him, and, and, and he, he, he ran, the Bible says, the book of Mark. Now, I imagine in his heart, he thought, ah, even though these things seem to be at odds, maybe there's a way it can all work out. And he came to Jesus, and he fell on his knees before him, you know, the Pharisees didn't fall on their knees for anyone. They considered themselves at the top of the chain and that everyone else should bend their knees to them. Specifically, uneducated, blue-collar, carpentry types like Jesus. So when the young man came and he bowed before Jesus, he was making a physical expression of humility and submission. And he says to him, good teacher, and scholars tell us that Pharisees would never, ever use those words, certainly not, to someone they considered beneath them. But he says this. And so there appears to be something going on in his heart. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded as he normally did with some cryptic answers because see the one thing about Jesus that you if you haven't learned yet you will is he can just get right to the heart of the matter he he won't he won't mess around with you too much he'll just call it like it is and Jesus says why you call me good no one is good except the father God alone besides you already know the commandments do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not give false testimony do not defraud honor your father and mother The young man comes to Jesus, and he has lived a life, what we know, what we would have seen if we lived in our days, and the way we would have measured him, he would have been a good, upstanding citizen, someone of the highest order, with the highest integrity, according to their beliefs, someone who had been successful in many ways in leadership, probably in commerce, because we know he had money. And so he was a man who to the, to the human eye was without blemish. And he comes before Jesus and he says, good teacher. Now he's, he's adding to his list of accolades humility. And he says, good teacher, please tell me, what must I do? Perhaps, perhaps he, he felt like he had lived his life well along, but something was missing. Or perhaps he just wanted, as some suggest, somebody to finally f- check him off the list and say, you're good. You're done. You're in. And the Bible tells us that he comes and he says, tell me, what must I do? And Jesus says, are you sure you want to know? Haven't you ever been warned? Be careful what you ask for from God, right? You've been warned, right? But we keep asking, don't we? Don't we keep asking? Aren't we like, God, uh, please answer me this prayer. What should I do here? (laughs) Have you prayed that? Oh, God, I don't know which way, which job should I take? Which person should I marry? What school should I go to? Where should I spend this money? Oh, God, help me figure this out. And God says, you sure you want to know? It's fascinating, isn't it? He says, why are you asking me that? Young man says, teacher, good teacher, on his knees, please tell me, what must I do To inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you already know. Now let's be honest. I am frustrated with this Jesus. He frustrates me. Doesn't he frustrate you? Where you're like, Jesus, help me, help me out. And he's like, I already told you. You already know. And Jesus goes on and he says, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And what he is repeating here is the very thing his people have held as the highest, the highest things to aspire to in life, the commandments. It is a direct quote from the Old Testament back in Deuteronomy, what God had given to his ancestors to the Israelites and to the tribe of Judah, of, him th- of whom this man is a direct descendant. See, back, way back, as we've been studying, if you've been around, I know some of you guys are just here today, but as we've been studying God's calling his people out of Egypt, he said to them, in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, on the foot of Mount Sinai, just before he handed these commandments, he says, I have, a, I have an offer for you. I have an invitation for you. And if you receive this from me, Exodus chapter 19. If you follow the commandments, if you obey, if you trust what I'm about to give you, then you will be for me a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation. You will be for me a special people. See, the interesting thing about this, this Pharisee is because they so wholeheartedly believed that they were direct recipients of that particular offer. They believed that they were chosen, still do. And they believe that their chosenness was so certain that it excluded anyone else who was not them. That's why, according to a Pharisee, there's only two kinds of people, a Jew or a Gentile. And you either were the chosen one or you were not chosen. Didn't matter who, what, where, how. Roman, Ethiopian, it didn't matter. You were either Jew or you were not. Jew and Gentile. They were so convinced that they were recipients of that promise in Mount Sinai where God had said, I'm going to give you some stuff, some principles, some commandments. And what we've been studying here in the last few months is how God has extended that invitation. It's it's interesting because it's not like God says, okay, I'm picking you and I'm going to put some obligations on you to force you to do something you do not want to do. Unless you do them, I will curse you, which is what most of us think God is like. And yet, as we've studied, we found that what God actually did do is he blessed the people of Israel long before they loved him or respected him. And he brought them out of Egypt and led them through the desert, right? We've talked about this several times now. And provided food from heaven. (gasps) Water in the desert, cloud cover by day, pillar of fire by night, miraculous deliverance from enemies. He rained down birds so they can eat when they wanted meat. He delivered them from plague after plague. after, And he did all that long before they loved him and respected him. So here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai and God says, I, want, I, I hope that by now you realize that I'm on your side and that I'm deeply in love with you and I'm inviting you to take our relationship to the next level. God says, Exodus chapter 19, he says, the whole earth is mine, but I'm giving you a special invitation. And if you trust me, then I will bless you, not curse you. He says, I will bless you. Chapter 19, he says, I will keep you free from diseases. Remember, we've been studying that. And you will inherit the promise that I made to Adam and Eve in the garden to fill the earth and have dominion over it. That you will be provided for. The same promise that I made again to Father Abraham when, he, when God said to Abraham, follow me. Go where I will tell you and I'm going to bless you, your descendants. He had no children at the time. I'll remind you. He says, your descendants will be like the sands in the sea and the stars in the sky. And I will bless the whole world through you. Same promise that he made to his son and to his son and to his son and now to their son's sons. And here they are, hundreds of thousands of people by now at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God says, let me reiterate the invitation one more time. I will bless you and bless the whole world through you. You will be for me a holy people, a chosen nation. Fast forward now, a long, long time, and we encounter this young man, wholly believing that he had been living a chosen life, wholly believing that he had followed these commandments. And yet in his heart, when he met Jesus, something was going on. So he comes to Jesus just to make sure, and he says, Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus says, you already know the answer to your question. Just like I am convinced today that most of you already know the answer to the question you keep asking. Jesus says, Thou shalt not murder. You already know. And listen to his response. It'll sound familiar because it's exactly what you and I say. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. He said, teacher, I have done it all. I'm good with that. I have checked things off the list. I have completed. I have done everything that I was supposed to do. But do you ever have that feeling where you do everything right, you've done everything that you were supposed to do, and somehow things still don't work out? You ever had that feeling maybe this week where you're like, I don't know what's wrong. I'm doing exactly what I think I'm supposed to be doing. What I've been told, to, I've been praying, I've been fasting, I've been asking, I've been giving, and still no answer from you. Ever feel like that? All these I have done since I was a boy. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at him, verse 21, and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I don't know what kind of love. Maybe it was a sympathetic kind of love, the kind where you look at someone and you just wish so much for them. You know what I'm talking about? You have family, friends, relatives, co-workers you are like, I so wish for better things for you. But somehow they just can't never get it together. You with me? Maybe it was a jealous love. The kind you have when you look at your husbands, wives, or kids, and you say, I just want to win you over. Jesus loved him. See, it's an interesting moment that, that in our conversation about finances, which is normally what we talk about when we get here, it's an interesting moment there that I have, I have lost, that God has given to me or is trying to give to me today. See, just a, just a few pages before, the Bible tells us that uh, Jesus had been teaching. You recall this. And although theologians can't support this in my mind, I imagine that this young man was there when Jesus said it. See, just a few pages ago, in the book of Mark, Jesus had been teaching. He had gathered children unto them, and and he was blessing, and, and there were people around who were saying, who is this man? This shouldn't be right. Even his own disciples said, get the kids away. And Jesus says, no, no, let the kids come. You remember the story? Come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You need to become like a little child. You need to trust me like a little child. And the disciples were like, I'm not sure I get it. And Jesus says, Jesus says, He who would come after me must first deny himself, then take up his cross and follow me. Remember that verse? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And his disciples were confused by that phrase Deny himself, take up his cross. What does that mean? See, for us in our day, uh, taking up the cross is a clear symbol of following Jesus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you have to understand, at the time Jesus said that, the cross was not the symbol of Christianity, it was a symbol of guilt. The only way you got a cross was if you were convicted and were sentenced to hang on a cross. It didn't have the same kind of fuzzy put it on my neck and put it on my logo connotation. Kind of Jesus says, Deny yourself, accept your guilt, your shame that you are a convicted felon, then come and follow me. So the disciples looked at each other and they were like, I don't understand that. But I imagine that this young man was listening, perhaps within earshot, and thinking, And the struggle began to form in his heart, deny himself, take up his cross. Over the last few weeks, we've been uncovering a series here on servanthood, which is what I intended to do to finish out the year as I'm preaching the last sermon of the year in our community. We've been talking about servanthood. Last week, we, we discussed how servanthood isn't so much about what you do. It's about what you're willing to give up for the sake of someone else. But servanthood is about sacrifice. It is not out of the overflowing excess that you have. It is giving up what you are unwilling to part with. That's what sacrifice is. That's what servanthood is. So too often in the Christmas season as we say, oh, people give a little bit of money here, so we drop a few coins in the bucket with the guys ringing the bell, or you're at the checkout, would you like to donate $1 to XYZ? Okay, sure. I'm being a servant. Ring me up for an extra dollar. And they put your name on that little placard and they stick it up and you're like, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've never done it? (laughs) Then we congratulate ourselves when we give a gift to someone who didn't give us a gift and we say, that's okay. That's because I'm a servant of God. And I'm going to give gifts even to those who don't give me gifts or I'll give a better gift than they can give me. I'm so sorry you didn't get to say, it's okay. I'm a servant of God. But friends, servanthood is not out of the excess of what we have. Sacrifice is giving up what we can't live without. It's very different. And I was supposed to finish off this day uh, unpacking that and saying, essentially, that's the story here that God has asked us to sacrifice because that is what he did for us. This is how we know that he loves us, that while we were still sinners, God sent his son into this world to die for it, for you and for me, as you read it, for God so loved the world. That's the story of Christmas. It isn't about merry and cheer and the yuletide and the blogs. Yeah, that's nice. Believe me. I love Christmas, except it's not about that. It's about a God who was willing to suffer, suffer. And it's a story and an invitation that has been repeated over and over in the Bible. Think about it. He asked, he asked Abraham to leave everything, his family, everything, and go to somewhere that God wouldn't tell him until he got there. Leave your people and your family and go to somewhere where I will show you. You're so frustrating, God. It's a story that gets repeated over and over again. Every time he comes to someone that God has a plan and a purpose for, he says, but at first, I need you to sacrifice this. Think about it. Think about it. He comes to a teenage girl and impregnates her with the Savior of the world. And he asks a teenage girl to sacrifice her virginity. Now, in today's culture, who cares? Teenage girl, pregnant. But put it in context Two thousand years ago, a young girl pledged to be married to a man suddenly has a belly. What would you do? How would you explain that? Imagine yourself saying to Joseph, "No, really, I I, I don't know how this happened." He asks a teenage girl to sacrifice her virginity and her reputation. You know what it would be like to, to be found out without, uh, that you, you, were, you had a bastard child in your womb 2,000 years ago? You know what that would be like? There's no Planned Parenthood to erase your mistakes or Plan B pill. You'd have to murder it yourself. Imagine that. And then there's Joseph. This is all Christmas story, right? This is the play. Then there's Joseph who's like, well, well, she's pregnant. All right. And I know it wasn't me. But I want to be a good guy. This is the story. Book of Matthew. He says he decided not to put her to open shame. And that he would divorce her quietly. And Joseph says, you know what? Clearly I don't deserve this. I've done everything right. I paid my diary. I, you know, I've been waiting. She was promised to me, but obviously someone else got to her first. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the good guy here because I am the chosen one. And I'm going to do it right, and I'm just going to quietly divorce her. No one has to be the wiser. And the angel comes, and he says to Joseph, No, you marry her anyway. You marry her anyway. What would you do? Could you live with that? See, that's what God does over and over and over again. Every time somebody shows up and he says, okay, God, I'm ready. Are you sure you want to know? Are you sure? And, and when they said, yeah, it hit me, God says, I need that one thing. And it just so happens to be the one thing you don't want to give up. The young man came before Jesus and said, what do I have to do? And Jesus said, you know, I don't, I don't need to tell you. You know the answer is, and he was like us. We're like, no, I pretty much, I think I got it all. But what, what strikes me as odd and what I've been thinking every t- when God gave me this passage this week, and I did not know it at the time, but what's striking me is that I wonder, I just wonder that if the, as he was running to Jesus, as he was hoping, like, okay, this is how it all finally gets worked out. I'm going to ask him, he says, no, you're good, you're a good person, and then I'll be free, and I'll be, uh, this feeling, this guilt and shame, that somehow I feel like I missed, even though I'm doing everything right, but I wonder, as he was running, if somehow, down deep in his soul, where the truth lies, if he ever asks himself, what if he asks? What if he asks me for that one thing? what if Jesus actually asks me for that one thing Bible says he said no Jesus I think I've got all of those and Jesus looked at him and loved him with a jealous love and he wanted to win him for eternity and he said to him one thing you lack like the worst words that could ever come out of the mouth of Jesus don't you think Jesus, I'm ready to go. I'm, Jesus, look, I've did this, I've done that. And Jesus says, you're still missing something. Isn't that like the worst thing? Have you ever made an application online, submitted stuff and thought, woo, and then you get an email back saying, you're missing something? Does that ever happen to you? It's like the worst feeling. It's such an, you're like, oh. This summer, over the course of a summer, We've been applying for visas to go to India. And I, I don't know if I have told you, but it's it's quite if you ever deal with the Indian government, it's like this. And it's like they want this and they want that. And every time we tried, because there were several of us, it was like, oh, but you need this, you need that, you need this, you need that. It's so frustrating. And you get that email. But it's one thing if it's a nuisance, this is something other. Jesus says, one thing you lack. Look what happens. He looked at him, and he says, one thing you're missing. He says, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. This is part of familiar. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus says, there's one thing you're missing, but there's a great answer to this. Get rid of that stuff. Sell everything you have, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man could have said, that's it? All I got to do is get rid of all the stuff that I don't use anyway? But the Bible says that at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad. I've been thinking about that, and I have been living it this week. You know the expression, your face falls? I I think you do, at least most of you do. You've been through, you lived in a moment where you got the worst, Bit of news that you could possibly imagine, and your face just feels like it crashes. I have a sad face to begin with, so you can imagine what my face looks like when it falls. Every time I look in the mirror, I say, I'm not that sad, but why does it look that way? I've been trying. But at this, the man's face, his face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus says, you know the story, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And then we get lost. Oh, yeah, it's about money, but no, it's not. And disciples were amazed, and it said, uh, Jesus said to them, listen, it is hard for for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, but, but. They said, no, but with Jesus, if that's so hard, then nobody can make it. Who then can be saved? And Jesus said, no, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. All things are possible with God. God was looking at this man. And he was saying, it's possible. It's possible. The thing that you seek. The thing that you think it's possible, all we've got to do, the only little one thing. You've got everything else right, but you've got this one thing. And he said, just get rid of your stuff and come and follow me. But you see, that's the one thing this young man was unwilling to sacrifice. It's the one thing he was unwilling to sacrifice. What if he asks for the one thing? See, all of us are like, God, if you're real... Tell me what to do. Show up in this instance. Prove to me. If you're really there, show me. Tell me. What must I do to get out of this mess? What must I do to be successful? What must I do to improve the situation? What must I do to rescue my son? What must I do to deliver my wife? And God says, you really want to know? Yes. I've been doing everything right. I've gone by the book. And Jesus says, through God, one thing. And he asks For the one thing that you and I already know has got a grip on us. And he says, That is what it'll take. Mm. My friends, that is the invitation for you this day. What if he asks? What if he asks for that one thing? What if he asks for that one thing? At the beginning of this year, at the very beginning of this year, first few weeks of the year, we began a series here. And if you've got to go, go. It won't bother me. But if you please would just let me share a testimony, I would be appreciative. At the beginning of this year, we we uh, did a series here on our campus called The Best Year Ever. Uh, we made banners, put them up, and we had a, it was a short series, four, four and some weeks. We talked about the best year ever. Me and the team got together, and uh, last year, God had blessed us so much. And as we got to the end of the year, they said, what, what, What's next? Pastor Milton, what's next? You're the leader. Tell us what to do with I'm like, Okay, I can do this. I can do this. And I said, We're going to come up with a series called The Best Year Ever, in which we will detail a few things that'll paint the map for the road." They're like, Okay, hey, that sounds good. good. Way to come up with that. And we, we met, we talked about it, and we were going to discuss. And I wrote it on a napkin at a restaurant in town, and it said, We're going to talk about worship, we're going to talk about finances we're going to talk about health and we talk about servanthood. And that's what we set out to do. And I remember we I preached the series with the help of Pastor Sam at the beginning of the year, and our hope was that this 2016 was going to be the best year ever. But I want to confess to you that the day that the banners went up, I was not happy. Already by the, by the second or third week of this year, we already knew things were not going to work out the way we planned. Early in January or sometime in January, we got word that Orlando and his family were moving. And it just kind of broke our spirits. I just confess that. Orlando had been such a great part of everything that's happening here. And they, were, they had to move away. We looked around and we said, what are we going to do now? Who's going to play? Who's going to organize We scrambled and scrambled. And I already felt like, uh uh-oh. And as we met together and as we prayed together, I said to them, this is going to be a difficult year and God is going to shake our community and people are going to fall out. And we are going to lose people that we love and it's going to hurt. I said it in such a way that I knew would happen and yet I did not comprehend that it would happen to me. Because that's what pastors do. We, we say the right things, and we preach the right things, but secretly we hope that God spares us from all of it. But by February, it was very evident, as the series was happening, as we started talking about these things, that people that we loved, and later in January, someone else that I love deeply in this community, stepped away, and then another, and then another. We talked about finances, we talked about health, but by March and April, as our board gathered together, we also realized that giving had, church giving had gone significantly down, and we were spending a lot more than we were taking in. God had blessed us already. We, were, we rested in the fact that God had built up our storehouses in the last three years, but this year we were losing not losing, but we 're just not taking in as much, and we surround ourselves it 's okay god 's going to take care of us, et etc, et etc. But by June and July, we had to adjust our budget if you 're on board, you know what i 'm telling is true. If not, we don 't try to worry you for you know I always told the people God is good he 's blessed us money 's been coming we 're not apple we 're not stocked by the money, whatever we got we'll use God will take care of us, and we had to preach. I had to preach and tell you that God would deliver at the same time at the same time, early in January and into April. We were planning for this trip. And as we invited the invitation to people for two years now, we've been talking, we're going to India. We've been saying, God has called us. This is the purpose. This is the mission. It's something important. And in January, as we met and the group decided, people were coming in and said, I want to go, but pastor, I'm not sure I'll have the money. And I said to their face, it's not about money. God has all the money in the world. I believe it's a lesson that God has taught me. And I'll tell you a long story about that some other time. But, but I was like, it's not about money. God will take care of it. I said it. God has done it. I believe that. But here's the truth. My family and I have made a commitment to go. And just the honest truth, we have resources. We have means. So for us, going on this trip was never going to be a financial sacrifice. Not in that way. Yes, you know, we couldn't buy extra presents or whatever. But, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's possible. We have money. Some way, somehow. Not really. It doesn't really go on trees. I believe that. But, but you know what I mean. Whereas some of the other people that were with us did not have the resources, the means. But for us, it was out of excess, not out of sacrifice. So I could easily say, God will provide. And we continued. And yet in our church as a whole, giving went down. In June, we had to adjust our budget. I'm just confessing it all because I've got to get it out. And during those months and during those seasons, I I felt like a sense of doubt about what God was doing here. His path and his, his blessing is so evident. And yet, just like you, as Solomon pointed out, I'm so vulnerable. And I felt conflicted and asked God, God, what am I doing wrong? I've done everything you've asked. I've been doing this. I've been faithful here. I've been doing this. But What's happening? What must I do? And Jesus said, you really want to know? So we lived through that. And I said, "Well, oh, I'm just going to keep soldiering on, God. And in the back of my head, I'll be honest with you, I said, well, it doesn't feel like the best year ever. Certainly not. It hasn't been in lots of ways. We've lost people. We've lost this. Lot. We have to shut down some ministries that you all know because you stop having snacks in January. And suddenly you're like, hey, where's the snacks? You all know that. I'm just going to keep soldiering on. But in the back of my head, I said to myself, there's some way God's going to deliver this. This will be the best year ever. And I'm just confessing to you that in the back of my head, I said, at least we're going to India. And at the end of this year, we're going to say, yeah, but we went to India. So it was the best year ever. Somehow this trip was going to redeem certain things. So we made plans, started saving money early in the summer we put a deposit on behalf of the church and i'm just telling you the church fronted the money that we had not raised because that's how amazing this church is and we said not to worry because we've done this before and god has always delivered it's not about money i know that god just wants you to know that and we when we carried on and et cetera. we had a, a contract in place i told you the story because i've been telling you all along god provided an agency that found us a way to get there it was all going to be so smooth In the months since the summer, since we did all that stuff, the struggle was getting people visas, which is no easy task. And some of us struggled harder than others. And yet, at every time, at every roadblock, God seemed to provide. And I was like, despite everything that's going through, this is going to be the one saving grace that, in fact, God provided a way where there seemed to be no way. And so we began to just be faithful. And in the summer, we did our series on health. Late summer, you remember? And if you were here, you'll recall that I preached on that story that is one of my favorites about the young men who say to King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down to you. Remember the story? The fiery furnace? It's one of my favorites where, where he, says, they say, he says to them, bow down for me or I'm going to burn you. And they said, you know what? We will not bow down to you because we know our God can save us. But even if he does not, we will worship no other. And I propose to you here publicly that they could not have made that statement that day unless they had started submitting their diet long before, remember? And we talked about how we needed to submit our bodies to God's instructions, which are clear over and over again, his intention for us physically if we have any hopes of being heroic spiritually down the road. And I propose to you that we take a good, long, hard look. But I also know, because I preached it earlier, that it starts with me. There's a sermon <laughs> entitled, "That's a spring called it starts with you. It starts with us. And it's a principle in our pastoral community that we must lead whatever we expect or want people to follow. And so my family and I decided to take up the challenge, which we did, the vegan challenge, and and by God's grace, he has been good. He has been good. You want to know how good? Just this week, amidst incredible chaos, we went to frozen yogurt. Because I was like, there's got to be something good happening to me right now. We packed our kids in pajamas on on Thursday night. I don't even know. And we went to frozen yogurt. And I said to myself, I'm going to indulge some yogurt. I don't care. But as I got my cup ready, my daughter, unknowing anything that's happening in my life and heart, she said, Papa, Papa, try this one. It's vegan. And she poured some, and she said, it's really good. It's kiwi strawberry. You know that one daughter who the first day of the challenge, remember she said, we can't do this. You remember I told you? I told you that. She said, we can't do this, Papa. How are we going to go to this birthday party? Remember the story? How are we going to this birthday party? We're going to have cake. and, and and, And I said, honey, this is what God's intention. She's the one who held me up on Thursday. So I poured a kiwi strawberry, <laughs> and I ate it. What was I supposed to do? But see, the story of this is is this. We talked about fi- health, and then we talked about finances, and how God is the owner of everything. We just manage whatever is in our hand to manage. It has nothing to do with us. And I felt and believed from the beginning of this year that this trip was going to be evidence to you, to us as a church community that God would provide and to every person who has said yes and is leaving this week. But wait, there's more. My last hurrah was to preach on servanthood and I was going to tell you today, so here we're going to go, we're going to sacrifice our Christmas. I, 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 sell, I sold it to you that way. Early this year, I sat down with friends, and I was trying to encourage them to go. They said, why are you going to go? Why are you going to go? You should just send the money. It would do so much more good there. And I said, well, sometimes going on a mission trip is not about what you do there. It's about what God does in you before you go, after you go. It's about, about, you know. But honestly, I didn't really mean that. (laughs) Or I didn't want to mean it. So I was supposed to preach on sacrifice, and I told my kids, because they said, you mean we're not going to have presents? I was like, no, we're giving away our Christmas. That's the letter that we wrote, the fundraising letter that we sent to our friends and relatives. Hey, my daughter, hey, we're giving away our Christmas. We're going to go to India. Please send us some money. We are sacrificing the Christmas season. And I refused to put up a tree in my house, and I refused because we're sacrificing the Christmas season. And I was content to tell me, myself, and my family, and you as a church, that was our big sacrifice. That while everyone else was filling up with cookie and, and, and hot chocolate, we were going to be suffering in India. Why go to India? Because we we're trying to model sacrifice. Over the last few weeks, as, as the season was closing, God has blessed us on our series on health. I know that there are some of you who are, who are living that physical blessing. God has blessed us financially. I know that there are some of you who have made some tough decisions, and God is blessing that. God has blessed this church. In the course of the summer, since we adjusted our budget, by the miracle and grace of God, money has come in. I, have a little, I never asked you for it. And yet there was one thing we lacked, and I lacked. As we were getting down to the wire about four weeks ago when we were supposed to get all our documents and everything in hand, that's a long story and I don't want to bore you, but essentially it's very complicated to go to India and to do everything you have to do. We're not going to to, to, to our main city. We're going to the sticks somewhere in the poorest region of India. It It takes a while and it takes a lot of stuff. And we had planned and I had done my best. And my deepest desire was that I would successfully lead this group through this experience and that we could say it was the best year ever because God wants to do something amazing in our community next year and in the years to come. And this was just going to be solid proof that God, in fact, would do that. And you can confide, you can have confidence in me as your chosen leader. But about four weeks ago, as we were expecting all these things, something went wrong. The agency wouldn't return my calls or emails. I called and left. And I said, hey, I, w- what's happening? Was I got a couple of hits saying, oh, don't worry. It's going to be fine. It's just as complicated, which it is. Meanwhile, we were waiting for visa approval. I, I, it's such a snowball. And I said, okay, just be patient. But I told no one. Why worry you needlessly? It's going to be fine. God will provide. And about three weeks ago, I started to really panic. It's three weeks. And I started emailing and calling and then we have another organization on the ground called Asian Aid, who's waiting for us, and they kept calling me and saying, "Hey, when are you going to get here? We need some. What's your itinerary? What's your itinerary?" And I would say, "I'll, I'll give it to you as soon as I have it, as soon as I have it." But I didn't want to worry anyone. Over the course of Thanksgiving, I was in a full-blown panic internally. But I got a phone call from the agency and an email that said, "Listen, do not worry. We have been praying about this. God is going to take care of it." You're going to be just fine. Okay. I just do what I have to do because when God says, run through this wall, you start running and then He will make a hole. I've heard that. Okay, I'm going to run. So we kept sending stuff, documents, we kept doing this. In the last two weeks, I ordered t shirts. Last Friday night, just let me let me confess it all out, okay? Last Friday night, I woke up in a sheer terror. I was supposed to preach. You know, the events of last week are just crazy. So I had my sermon title submitted and everything. And I, But last Friday night, I woke up in a sheer terror. And I felt something is not right. I, I already known that. I just didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to accept it. And I got on the internet and I... Stalked whoever I could stalk in relationship to my situation, and I was in a f- full panic that the we were not going to go to India. That something was wrong. I tried to mask that. I came to church and I preached, and I don't know if you could tell, but when I said, "What do we do now?" it was not about. It was an honest question. God, what do I do now? Monday morning. I started writing, telling, calling, threatening, whatever I could do. And I finally got a call back from the agency. That's this Monday, by the way. They just passed. And he expressed to me that something had, in fact, gone wrong. And that the itinerary that we had set in motion months ago, and the money that we had paid, and everything that we had planned had disappeared, vanished. He gave me a reason, a story, but at this, my face fell. And I began to fully just explode on the inside. But he said, do not worry. I'm working on something. It's going to take you to China. It's going to do this. We're going to, it's going to work out. And I started to sw- swirl because the one thing I didn't want to do is not come through for you as a church. And I felt devastated. And I had been carrying this by myself, but I couldn't do it any longer. I didn't want to tell my wife. I don't want to disappoint her. You know, my wife's been buying stuff for India for months now. She has been working out, doing squats, saying, I'm going to be healthy when we go to India. But when she got home on Monday night, from the gym, no less, I told her, honey, something's happened. What I didn't want is for her to be disappointed in me, right? She said, we need to call our friends, and we did, and I told them, I don't know what's happening. I've got assurances from the travel agency, but I don't know what's happening. And I started wrestling with God. See, all last week, As the terrorist attacks happen and as these questions linger and as I came to preach before you, I know that I've been saying the one thing we need to do the first topic of the year was we need to praise God even in the midst of our most significant trials because that is what unlocks His power. We got to believe in Him before He delivers. That's what faith is. We need to sing even when we have no reason to sing. But I could not sing last week. I tried. I tried. And in my heart, there raised doubts and fears. Have I just been a fool all these years and all my life? Does God even exist? You been there? So I confessed to my friends and I told them, you guys got to pray for me. I don't know what else to do. And Secretly, I hope that the man who promised us, which he told me on the phone, he says, don't worry, I'll have something square for you. Don't worry, it's going to happen. Do not worry the next day. Because, see, friends, what I really wanted was to never have to say this to you. I wanted him to make it all happen. And I would tell my friends and the people, hey, it's going to be just fine. We're going to, that. you would never have reason to doubt my leadership. I wanted not to be embarrassed. But Tuesday, he wouldn't answer the phone. He wouldn't return my calls. He wouldn't text me, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I kept zombieing through my day. I went to school, picked up my kids. Meanwhile, I had called everyone I knew was on his list of contacts and people at the Anyway, somebody called me back about 4:30, and I said, "Do you know this person?" And they said, "No, they're good. You can trust them. I would totally do this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I was like, "God, what did I do wrong?" What am I missing? What's happening here? What are you trying to do to me? And I said, have you used them for travel before? And she said, well, no, truthfully, no, I go with this other agency. (laughs) I grabbed my kids. We were at the school and we were going to go home and we were watching the basketball game at the school and I looked it up on my phone. The travel agency closes at 5 p.m. and I said, okay, God, if I get home before 5, I'm calling them. And I did. I got home before 5 4.55 to be exact, and I called, and a man answered on the other side. And I said, I'm just telling you that, I just let you know this was happening. I'm taking a group of people to India next week, but et cetera, et cetera. I was like, I don't know if you could help me because this looks like impossible. Do you know why I had to use an agency in the first place? It's because months ago, I'm talking nine months ago, I could not secure tickets for a group of 20. An average person can't do it unless you're a travel agent. I called the airlines. I contacted group bookings. I tried every way I can and I couldn't do it myself. So I told him. And he says, Well, you know what? It's Christmas. And you're going to India with a group of 20. I'll see what I can do. He called me back later that night, about 7 30. And he said, I went home, I put it on my computer. I found 20 tickets from LAX to India. It is through China. But I found some and I've got them on hold. And you've got till 10 p.m. tonight to buy them. Hope sprung up in me, hmm? Cause I was so crushed, my face had fallen. And I, I called my friends and I said, What do I do? What what do I do now? But see, the thing is, we had already spent the money. So my friend said, well, listen, you can't buy these tickets. We don't have a way. So we will just let God provide. Okay. I said, okay, I guess that's the lesson. God will provide. But I called the credit card company, and they said, sure, go for it, essentially. So at 10 p.m. that night, I called them, and um, those of you that are in the room know, what I didn't want to do is I knew I had to call an emergency meeting to tell our friends something's gone wrong, but at the moment, I have nothing. We're not going to India. That's the one word, the words I did not want to say. So I called the company, and I said, listen, let's buy these tickets. They told me it's, it's, it's fully voidable, refundable, completely in 24 hours. You have 24 hours. After that, it's refundable. Really? I didn't know you could do that. I said, well, travel agents have special privileges. So he said, just, I said, I've called an emergency meeting on Wednesday night. This was late Tuesday night. I called an emergency meeting Wednesday night, and he says, I will stay up until you have your meeting. Then call me, and if, if you want to avoid them, we'll just avoid them. So I thought, good, I have a backup plan. Oddly enough, the tickets he found were cheaper than what we originally paid to begin with. I was like, really, in a matter of days, in an hour and a half, So we met Wednesday night, and I confessed to my friends and fellow travelers how the one thing I didn't want to do is show ineptitude, like I hadn't done my job, and I just felt terrible. And what I didn't want you to do is to question my leadership. But I wanted you to know that God would provide and stand behind the things that we have promised. And they said, Pastor, and words I can't express, they said, Pastor, it's not your fault. It feels like that. And they said, it's not your fault. And we gathered together and we prayed. And they said, if God wants us to go, he will provide a way. So what should I do? Meanwhile, as we're praying, I'm getting texts and emails from our original agency saying, we got it. I've got you booked. These are the confirmation codes. As we're praying. And secretly, I had hoped that they would come through so that today I could say, see, all along, I trusted them, we trust them, and it happened. Praise be to God. So after we hung up the phone, I mean, after we finished our meeting and everyone went home, I had 10 p.m. to, 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 to um, complete the, the, the void transaction. And it would be no harm, no foul. We could just say, hey, we had a little mishap. Hey, don't worry, guys. It's all good. We were gone. And I thought, okay, this is the way God delivers. This is the way God delivers. And then we can all just sing his praises on this day. We can all just go about our business. This will, in fact, be the best year ever. So we came into my office. I called the first travel agent, and I said, we have these booking codes. And he said, well, you can get a booking code without actually purchasing a ticket. Did you know that? He says, a booking is just a hold. It's a promise to buy but it isn't necessarily bought. What do I do? How do I check? He says, you should call India because it's 1 p.m. in the afternoon right now. So we did. My friends called India through the magic of Skype. And the person on the other side said, no, in fact, these are real tickets. They have your name. They just haven't been purchased yet. It is a hold. So there we were. I had tickets in hand, which we had bought with a secondary credit. And I had the promise And we stood and we prayed and we said, and I asked, what should we do? You know know what we thought the lesson was? Control. I did anyway. We've been talking about, hey, if God is in charge, then he has to be in charge. And everything that I've done means nothing. It means that this is the moment I have to give up control. I've been trying to control that. Yes, and that's still true, but wait. So as we prayed, we said, let's give up the tickets we have in hand. And let's trust that this agency will come through. Despite, and this will be a story we'll tell about the fact that God is in control. That's the story, plan B, I wanted to tell you today. So there was a strange sense of peace in our hearts as we I canceled those tickets without penalty. But once again, in a matter of days, we were in the wind. An upcoming trip, promises made, so it was already in the air, and I had nothing. When I went to bed that night, I, I feel like I want to sleep. I haven't slept for days. I haven't eaten. I haven't been able to breathe. And I said, okay, God, give me rest. And everyone said there's a strange piece about us that we're giving up with because we're going to let God provide. We're going to let God provide. So I went to bed that night, and I was sleeping just fine, at least I thought, and then God rose me up on my sleep, and I had this extreme anxiety, and this is what I realized in my extreme anxiety, and I woke up, and I suddenly went to the computer, and I realized that I had been angry and, and, and upset with this agency, for they were not delivering what they had promised me, but what I realized in that moment is that I was guilty of the same sin. I had been promising God all year long That I was gonna be faithful in certain financial promises to Him. But I've been waiting. I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. And it just fell on me. How could I be offended at someone's unfaithfulness when I was guilty of the same? I went to the computer and I gave God the money I promised Him. And I said, okay, that's how it works. God has had a track record. When we finally release control and give the money he delivers, that's how I have the house where I live and the car that we drive. It's it's a trackable record in my life. So I said, okay, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm going to get the phone call from this person, and it's all going to be good, and we're on our way. So when I wake up, I call the airline, and I, and I put the codes in, the promises from the night before. This is Thursday morning. And they said, oh, no. That booking expired. Those tickets were never purchased. This is two days ago. And again, one more time, I had nothing. And I began to cry out to God and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Ever prayed that prayer? I thought I did everything right. What is happening? Save me from this mess. What can I do? I thought the lesson was to give up control, God. I thought it was about, you know, uh, money. But it's not. It's not. What, what is happening to me, God? And then I called the second agent, and I told him, I know I asked you to counsel last night. And he says, well, once we release them, there's no guarantee that you can get them back. You're talking 20 people at Christmas and New Year's to India. He says, but I'll see what I can do. And once again, I was in this position that I did not want to confess to you. And I prayed and I wrestled with God, and God made it abundantly clear that the one thing I lacked that he was asking for was for my pride. I had wanted to appear competent and capable, and that I would deliver on the promises I made to these people, to Asian aid and to everyone. And I was so afraid to tell everyone, including my wife. I wasn't re- responding to Asian Aid's requests because I didn't have anything, but I just felt so embarrassed. I felt so ashamed. I hear the questions in my head. Why don't you know this sooner? How could you be fooled this way? Why don't you fix this first? Why are you waiting until now? This doesn't make any... We gave you money. I I pondered everyone who took time to le- read my daughter's letter and write a check and send it to my church and how embarrassed that would be to explain. And I asked God, what must I do? And God says, you have to confess. So this is my confession. I am not a capable leader. I am embarrassed and I'm sorry. I tried and I, I've, gotten so much support but the one thing i was unwilling to give was my pride i didn't want to say i did not want you to know i didn't want anyone to know i didn't want to give people doubt <laughs> the truth is it's not about me it's not about me i am not a capable leader it's not what god asked me i'm not a travel agent <laughs> i'm not any of those things I'm not a good money manager. I'm just loved by God. And on Thursday afternoon, they found us 20 tickets. And on Friday afternoon, they found us an additional transportation from where we first land to where we're going to go. Just yesterday, late in the afternoon, I can't believe I'm telling you this. (laughs) This is a story that God is writing, not about what we are capable of doing or what I am capable of doing for you, with you as a leader. It's a story about God. It's a story solely about God. And I am unworthy of his mercy and undeserving of his gifts. And I no longer want to claim that I am entitled to any of that. But what I do want to proclaim on this day is that God deserves every praise, that it all belongs to him, my body, my soul, my spirit, and that whatever he asks for, I must give him. And today I give him my pride. I give him my pride. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and to sing the last song. And if you would join us in it, I would so appreciate it. And at the end of the song, I will invite every person who's going to India to come forward as we have our final prayer before we leave. For we are, on Tuesday, in the name of the Almighty God, traveling to India, not for our sake, but for His glory.